Psalm 79. Um, actually, before I get there, I, I was thinking about uh, the struggles that we've been going through uh, in the world today. I was thinking about the, the terrorism that uh, people have been invoking. And I was trying to think, you know, as a counselor, what is the mind of a terrorist? What does a terrorist want to accomplish? And I I think a a terrorist wants to try to accomplish this, that they believe that there's something not fair in life, that there's something not right. They look at an inequity that is happening and they judge this inequity in a certain way. And they look and they say that, you know, it's not right the way things are happening, but on top of that, they believe that something is not fair. They believe that the status that they're in is not fair. The situation that they're going through is not right, and it's not fair. But then they move to an element that one psychologist said is that they move from it's not right to it's not fair to it's your fault. They start to shift the blame and responsibility to somebody else, some other group of people, and that group of people now becomes the, the people that we find fault in. And what they want to do is now they see you as evil. They see this outside person as evil. And what they want to try to do is they want to create fear in this group that they see as evil. They want to create some level of psychological or emotional or mental or physical fear that we have. That's where the terror comes in. We find in counseling oftentimes that when somebody has fear, they move to a place of wanting to try to control people and control events. And that invokes some level of anger that happens within. Well, isn't that exactly what happens with terrorism? That there's a fear that they have of us. There's a fear that they have of a group. They want to exercise some control over that group, either emotionally, physically, mentally, They want to invoke fear and terror and chaos in your life. See, what they believe is this, that if I can challenge the things that you find security in, if I can challenge the things that you find satisfaction in, if I can challenge the things that you find comfort in, you're going to find yourself disorganized. The fear is going to lead to doubt. The doubt is going to lead to me running to my comfort things, and my comfort things are going to run me to a desire to control And so we live in a world right now where it feels like things are out of control, right? We live in a world today where we think that um, things are extremely fearful. And I feel for many people today. I sit in an office day after day and people are so worried as they turn on the news and they hear of these these tragedies, these these destructive things, these evil things around the world and they're wondering when is it going to come here And it already has in many ways. I believe this psalm helps us to understand what can happen and where we need to go in the midst of the terror that is happening around. See, the one thing is I can't control anybody else. I can't ultimately control you. I can't control anybody. I'm called to control me. And the Bible gives me principles of how I can order my mind and order my heart and order my life in the midst of the chaos and the confusion that is happening today. 
So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling great levels of fear or apprehension or insecurity. I'm telling you, I believe that the scriptures talk to you in a way that can help you through this because I believe the answer is this. Help me, oh God. That as I'm going through this, there is a God who is sovereign in control. You may not see it. He is. There is a God where there's a future that is absolute and secure. You may not see it today, but I can guarantee you it's there. And the scriptures teach about that. Let's look here in this passage in Psalm 79. As I read these first four verses, I want you to consider the, uh, the time that we're in and hear about the stuff that you hear on the news. Isn't this exactly what we're going through? How long, O Lord? A Psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heaven for food and the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water all over Jerusalem. There was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. I believe this psalm is broken down into uh, three sections that we're going to be looking at today. The first section is the problem. And the psalmist is going to give a lament over the devastation that is happening in the nation of Israel. I should tell you some historical things that this is happening probably around, there's some debate, but it's probably around the Babylonian captivity. And Nebuchadnezzar comes into this land and he is destroying this land point after point after point. He destroys the people, he destroys their land, and he goes into their temple and he defames them and defiles them. This is happening around 586, 587 B.C. And so the destruction that is happening here is probably that. That's the first thing that we're going to be talking about, the problem. The second thing we're going to do is the longer portion of this psalm is the prayer. The prayer that the psalmist offers in the midst of the problem and the lament that is happening, the devastation that is happening, God, I need your help. He'll cry out in prayer. And then the last thing is it will end in praise. So the problem, prayer, and praise. So let's try to talk a little bit about this. I love the Psalms. Uh, It was Athanasius um, who said, the other scriptures speak to us, but the Psalms speak for us. I like that. Scripture speaks to us, all of it does, but the Psalms, there's something about it that that speak of the emotions that we have. It's a prayer book. It is an opportunity to be able to lift our prayers to God and lift the emotions that we're going to to God and to be able to give voice to the struggles that we're going through. We find the problem here, the devastation that is happening, happens in four phases. The first phase is defilement. It's found in verse 1. That He says, oh God, the nations, the Gentile, the pagan nations, the non-believing nations have come into or they have invaded your inheritance. Now, Scripture teaches about this idea of inheritance, that inheritance could either be the land or it could be the people or it could be the city of Jerusalem. And what you're going to find is that this devastation is happening on all three levels. It's the land that has been invaded, it's the people that have been impacted, and it's the um, Jerusalem, the city that has been overrun. So, God, they've come into your inheritance. 
But they didn't stop there. They defiled your holy temple. They went into this sacred place, the place where people would go to to hear God, to go to have a sacrifice done for their sins. It was at that place, the holiest, holy place, that the Babylonians came in and they defiled it. And the defilement was is so corrupt and so egregious against this holy God. But the devastation didn't stop with defilement. The defilement went to destruction. We see that here at the end of verse 1. It says, they have laid Jerusalem, this is the capital city, they've laid it in ruins. They basically reduced it to rubble. Stone upon stone, heaps of stone. They have turned the city upside down. They've ransacked the city. But they didn't stop at defilement. They didn't stop at destruction. They moved to death in verse 2. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of heaven and the flesh of your faithful beasts, faithful to the beast of the earth. These are your saints, God. These are your believers, and they've given them over to wild animals. What a great humiliation. You know, when a person dies, one of the things that we want to try to do is to care for their bodies and take care of their bodies, right? We, we want to bury them or, or give them a proper, uh, proper uh, care for. Um, what they were doing was leaving the bodies out in the streets. And the bodies were now being, they weren't only just killed, and now they were being desecrated by wild animals. It was a devastating time. It was a destructive time that was happening. They were unloved. They were uncared for in their death, and now they're being treated with just such great inhumanity. It says in verse 3 that they have poured out their blood everywhere. That as you're walking through the streets, kind of like we heard on the news about Friday, blood is just spilled in the streets, and people are having to walk through this. It's what's happening in the nation of Israel in Jerusalem at this time. All around Jerusalem, there's no one to bury them. There's contempt, there's cruelty, there's desecration. Most of the people in this captivity were carried away. So they were carried away. Some were destroyed and uh, desecrated, but others were carried away into captivity. So there was no one left there to take care of the bodies. So we went from defilement to destruction to death. Now we get to derision. Derision in verse 4. It says, we have become a taunt to our neighbors. Basically a joke, right? an insult, the snares that the sneers that are happening. They're criticizing, they're verbally abusing us, God. Why? They've mocked and derided us by those that are around us. I don't know who it was, the Syrians, the Moabites, the um, Edomites. I'm not sure who it was, but there were people around the nation of Israel that were joking about the struggles that they were going through. What humiliation, what struggles... You know, some of us today believe that you are going to find safety and security in a political party or in a candidate. And you believe that the political party or this candidate is going to provide you salvation. They won't. They won't. Because the political party could not provide salvation to this nation of Israel. They were decimated. Some of you believe that the economic well-being is going to provide you security. But they don't have any jobs now. Their land has been decimated. Some of you believe that you find security and satisfaction in your social relationships, your relationships with others. 
Well, those relationships break apart time after time. Some of you believe that you will find safety and security in the building that we're going to have. And as beautiful as that building is going to be, that is not where we're going to find our safety and security. Our safety and security has to be in one person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he speaks of the struggles that are happening here, and then he goes to the prayer. And this prayer goes from verses 5 through 12, and it's interesting how he breaks this prayer down. He starts with a probing question, and then he gives a series of petitions. And then he will go to another probing question, God, and then he will go to another series of petitions. So let's try to work through it here. The first probing question is found in verse 5. He says, how long, O Lord? Have you ever asked that question? They can't see an end to the problem. They can't see an end to the struggles. They feel a level of dismay. They feel rejected. How long, God? How long, O Lord? But then they realize what the dilemma is. This is a high point in the the, um, the the psalm. High point. They're seeing the devastation that is happening around them, but what do they do? They focus on where they have failed. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? This psalm talks about suffering. The psalm talks about chaos and confusion that's coming into life. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I go through suffering, I I automatically want to blame somebody else, right? I automatically want to find somebody else to blame for the suffering that I'm going through. And sometimes I can, right? Sometimes I could look outward and say that you're sinning against me and you're causing this. Sometimes it's just because we live in a sin-cursed world, health issues and physical issues that you go through, and we live in this sin-cursed world, and some of the suffering you go through is because of that. Others are because of some uh, satanic or evil type things that happen in this world, some of the suffering that we go through. But there's other suffering that we go through that is personal. I have chosen wrongly, and there are consequences to that behavior. What we're going to find is that the nation of Israel, for years after years after years, have rejected God, had turned away from him, had taken the gifts that he'd given given them, and they spit it back in his face. They turned other gods for their satisfaction They turned to other gods for their security, and they failed. It says here, will you be angry with us forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Have you ever felt jealous before? Rightfully jealous that somebody is doing something against someone that is your own, you're somebody that is your person, and they're coming into your life, and they're trying to take that person away from you? You feel a level of jealousy. Well, think about a God who is rightfully desiring your praise, rightfully desiring your honor, and you are going after someone else for your satisfaction and comfort, and he's jealous. And the people of Israel have been given blessing after blessing, and they fail to follow him. How long, O Lord? The probing question moved to a series of petitions. The petitions start in verse 6. The three petitions that are here. Judge them, pardon us, deliver us. Let's start with the first petition. Judge them. Pour out your anger 
on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. You know, this is what we call an imprecatory uh, psalm. Uh, this, this idea of to means to invoke a curse on somebody, to call to God to judge a person or a people. For some reason, we feel uncomfortable with that. I think this side of the cross, we, we would think that that type of prayer is wrong. Well, it wasn't. There are times that we are asking God to deal with evil that is in this world. That's a prayer that we should be lifting day after day. That God, I am calling for you to protect us. I'm calling for you to judge evil that is happening around. There are people that are uh, doing wrong. You know, in the Old Testament, it seems as though some people think that the Old Testament is kind of like this uh, place of anger and judgment and that the New Testament is about love and grace. I don't know how they're reading scripture. Because as I look at the Old Testament, yes, there's um, judgment and wrath, but there's also love. That out of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned and they could have been condemned forever and they weren't. That yes, there was an ark and many people were destroyed, but there was a, a saving of humanity. And there was people in a desert. The Israelites were saved from their, from their enslavement in Egypt. They were taken through a desert. They continued to sin against God, and God still took them to a promised land. And time after time through the Old Testament, we see God's justice, and we see God's mercy. But we see that as well in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see God's justice and we see his mercy. And the clearest place that I see that is at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the cross of Jesus Christ, what he did was he took humanity's sin and he poured that out upon his son. And then he offered you grace. He offered you love. He offered you forgiveness. So the judge them really should be about judge me, Lord. And if you're judging me, Lord, Eternity does not look good. So then I need you to move to pardon me. Pardon me. He says in verse 8, do not remember against us the former iniquities. Now that could be the sins of his ancestors or that could be his present sins of his time. I take it to be the sins of the people at that time, how they had failed to follow God. They were foolish. They were adulterous. They were idolatrous. They were lustful. And they failed to submit to God. And the psalmist recognizes that we need God, you, we need you to pardon us. He says, don't remember, don't earnestly remember our former iniquities, the sins that we've committed. Lord, let your compassion come speedily or quickly to us. Your compassions, your tender mercies, Lord, your graciousness. The psalmist said this in Psalm 51. He says, he, as he was praying his psalm, he was also praying that the tender mercies of God would come heavily upon him. Asaph sees here that they've been brought very low. They've been impoverished. They have no city. They have no economy. They have no temple to go and worship in. They have been utterly devastated. God, we've been brought so very low. We're on the edge of hopelessness. Lord, pardon us, forgive us. But then he says, deliver us. I love this verse. Verse nine, help us. I think that's our problem. We think we can do this on our own. I can't. 
I cannot live a day, I don't breathe if it's not by the glory of God. And there is no way I can go through the terror attacks that will come and the struggles that will come into my life if it's not empowered by God in my life so that he can work through my life. Help me, oh God, help me. I can't, you can. You have, you will, you always will. I can only in you, God. Help me. Help me to believe you, Lord. It's one thing to read the scriptures, because can I believe you when there's chaos and confusion happening all around me? Help me to believe. Help me to repent, Lord. Help me to see my sin more than I see the other person's sin. Help me to see my sin, Lord, and help me to turn to you and repent to you. Help me. Help me to love the unlovable. The crazy thing is that scripture tells me that I'm supposed to be praying for these terrorists. I'm supposed to be loving my enemy. How can I do that? Help me, O Lord, to do that. Help me, O Lord, to obey the right thing in the midst of the fears that happen. Help me, O God. He says that, God, you're the God of our salvation. And the psalmist is interesting here because he says, don't just help me do all of these things. He says, help me for the glory of your name. Can you go back with me to verse the first couple of verses? There is a, a repeated word in the first couple of verses. It says, the nations, verse 1, have come into whose inheritance? Your inheritance. They have defiled whose temple? Your temple. Verse 2, they have given the bodies of your saints, your servants, that time after time they are attacking your name, God. In verse 6, this is an attack not just about humanity. This is an attack on the glory of God. And the, say, the psalmist is saying, Lord, save us to rescue your name, to make your name famous in this world. He says, deliver us. It means to save us, to rescue us. Deliver us from our fears. Deliver us from our sins. He says, and atone for our sins. Atone means to cover, to cancel, to forgive, to purge away. There was only one person that did that, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, do this all for your name's sake, Lord. At the end of verse um, nine. So God, I need you to pardon me. I need you to deliver me, not primarily for my good, but for your glory. See, humanity has this tendency to seek after its own glory. We want to make much of ourselves, right? The real mature person recognizes that the glory should be God's and God's alone. So I guess I ask you, are you concerned for the reputation of God? in your life? Do you even consider it? Do you consider how people will look at you because you call yourself a believer and they look at your life? Can somebody look at your life and see God? Can somebody look at your life and see glory? Can somebody look at your life and see honor and justice and rightness? We're here to reflect him. So the first probing question was how long, and then he had a series of petitions. The second probing question was this, why? Verse 10, why should the nation say, where is your God? Isn't that exactly what the world does? 
they attack your God. He's not here. He's not protecting you. You better be afraid of me. And what they want is the focus of attention to become horizontal rather than the focus of attention being vertical. Where is your God? They're deriding you. They're mocking you. And the psalmist is saying, God, work for your people so that they see clearly that you're God. Protect your reputation. Defend your names. Take your standing, Lord. Why? And then there's a series of petitions. The second set of petitions start with this idea of vengeance. Avenge your blood or avenge our blood, Lord. Verse 10. Let the avenging of the outpouring of blood of your servants happen. Basically, he's saying, Lord, I want you to take revenge. I want you to retaliate. I want you to bring judgment upon this world because your servant's blood has been poured out. This is the second time he's used the word blood, if you remember in the psalm. The first time was the blood is pouring through the streets. This time he's talking about the blood outpoured of your servants. The blood has been poured out like water. The psalmist is now making a plea to God, avenge the blood. I was thinking about the fact that the real blood that was shed that will protect you, the real blood that was shed that will save you is the blood that was poured out on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, his blood purchased every believer's sin, took your sin away, and he purchased you from ransom in hell. Christ's blood propitiated. What it means, propitiation means, it means that the anger that God has for your sin has been taken care of in Christ, that God poured out that anger on Christ, and now he doesn't have to pour it out on you. His blood has propitiated your sin, has taken it away. His blood has justified you, declared you not guilty, and declared you righteous in his sight. Jesus' blood has redeemed you. He has released you. You were trapped and you were enslaved, but you were no longer held captive if you were in Christ. His blood has brought you near. It's brought you into a family of the Lord Jesus Christ, the family of God. His blood has brought peace, Scripture tells us. It's the end of hostility. His blood has cleansed us, has cleansed us from the defilement of sin. His blood has sanctified you. See, instead of avenging our blood, God, against another human being, help us to recognize that the real avenging was the fact that you did it on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that Christ bore my penalty, bore your wrath, and now I can stand free in you. Avenge your blood. Hear our cries. Verse 11. Let the groans of the prisoner come before you, According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. I was thinking this hymn by John Wesley. He said, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, right? He says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. God we're crying out, we are moaning, we are sighing, we are in weariness, and we need you to hear us. We are prisoners, we're held captive, we're oppressed, we're vulnerable, we're suffering. We need you to hear us. And God wants to demonstrate his great power to you, 
his great mighty arm to preserve you, to protect you, to bring you, to spare you from doom. Avenge our blood, hear our cries, defend your honor, Lord. Here's the last petition. Defend your name, defend your honor, verse 12. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Now, the psalmist could mean that what they've given us, give them back seven times what we've given, they've given us, it could be. It also could be that the number seven seemed to be a number of perfection or fullness and that he is calling for full and complete avenging to happen. Whatever way it is, he is calling for his enemies to be silenced and to be overwhelmed. And once again, he gives you the reason, not because they're attacking us, but the taunting you, God. They're not merely a taunting you, they're attacking you. They're scoffing at you. They're sneering at you, God. So what's the problem? There's a devastation in the land. What's the prayer? The prayer is how, and then a series of petitions, and then why, and a series of petitions, and now we get to the last thing, praise. Now, most of us would not think about praising God in the midst of the most difficult times of our lives, but that's exactly where we need to go. The psalmist changed his direction. He changed his direction from the temporal and the immediate and the horizontal to the eternal and the godly and the vertical. He turned his focus. He says, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. See, there's a hope. There's a confidence. He takes an eternal perspective. They have not been freed yet. He's looking forward to the freedom that they're going to have. He trusts in the God who's greater than the terrorist. He's trusting in the God who's greater than Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Babylon is gone. God remains. Israel remains. Your people remain. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. This perpetual thankfulness that is going on, it's a response to who God is, not about the circumstances. So I was thinking about in closing, as I look at this psalm, there's so many of us that find ourselves day after day finding our satisfaction and security in the things of this world. You believe that if your candidate gets elected in November, that we'll be secure. Don't bank on it. You believe that your investments in the bank are going to make you secure. Don't bank on it. You believe that your relationships will hold you secure. Don't bank on it. You believe that the land that you're on right now is your security. Don't bank on it. Where we are called to bank on is a God who is greater than all of this. So as I was thinking about this, just trying to take this home for me, I was thinking about the fact that suffering is going to come. It's already here for many of us. And God has been so gracious to us here in the West that um, we turn on the TV and we see the terrorist things that are happening around this world. We don't have as much here. We have the privilege of sitting in this building this morning and we don't have to fear somebody coming in and taking our lives. But there are many believers around this world that don't have that same privilege. 
I have the Bible that I could read from. There are many believers around this world that don't have it. And we think that our lives are so cushy. I'm telling you, suffering's going to come. And where do you stand? Where is your foundation? I was thinking about this, that the suffering is coming because of external things, yes, but the suffering was primarily because of internal things that were happening in these people's hearts. They weren't trusting in God. They were putting other things before God. Where do you put your satisfaction today? I was thinking about the fact that the psalm tells me it's right to cry out to God in my sorrow, in my pain. There's nothing wrong with crying out to God in pain. He wants to hear you. The psalm is telling me it's right to ask God questions as well. There is absolutely nothing wrong with asking fair and reasonable and respectful questions. Like, God, I just don't get it. Keep me from confusion. Keep me from doubt, Lord. It's good to pray, the psalmist tells me. You know, passionately, consistently, persistently, specifically pray. It's good to do that. Many of us don't. It's also wise to examine myself first before I examine your sin. We look outward for our problem. My greatest problem is me. I know it. Not you. It's me. But the vast majority of us want to believe that our greatest problem is somebody else. It's not. The psalm tells us that the greatest problem that we have is not outward, it's inward. The psalm tells me that all God's people are responsible to worship God. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. What does he require of you? To do what is right. When everybody around you may be doing wrong, do what is right. Micah says, love others mercifully. Even your enemies, love them mercifully. Walk humbly before your God. The last thing the psalm tells me is this. I want to be able to suffer if I have to for righteousness sake. Peter talked about that, right? He talked about the fact that there are some of you that are suffering. Make sure you're suffering for doing what is right. Don't suffer like the people of Israel here were suffering because they were doing something wrong. If you're at a place in your life where you're sitting there saying that, you know what? I know I'm not where I need to be with Christ. I have made things of this world my satisfaction and my security, not you, God. I pray that this morning would be the day that you would say, God, I turn to you and to your son because he's taken away my ang your anger for my sin. He's freed me. I pray this morning would be the day that you would recognize that there is only one path of real security and one path of real satisfaction in life. It's not going to be found in this world. It's going to be found in Christ. I also pray for those that are around us today that are brothers and sisters in Christ that are suffering immense persecution today. I don't think you, I wonder if you ever think about it, that they're brothers and sisters of Christ that are being imprisoned today, being tortured today because they trust in God. And we've got our cushy lives here in America. I don't know how long that's going to last. 
But I do want to know this, that when struggles come, who do you turn to? Lord, I pray. This morning, that as we, as we, as we think about the, the terrorism that happens around us, there are many of us that are sitting here this morning in levels of fear. We're afraid of what is coming upon us. Some of us are afraid to go into big cities. Some of us are afraid to go into places because they are afraid of what's going to happen. And Lord, I guess in some ways that fear is appropriate. There's some terrible things that are happening around. There's some evil things that are happening around. Lord, I pray that we would take the blessing that you've given us of the peace, the relative peace that we have with our country and use it to be a blessing to others. Father, I pray that we would remind ourselves that our security and our satisfaction are never going to be found in anything on this earth. Political, economic, material, social, they're not going to provide that salvation for us. It's only your son. So Lord, I pray that he would be the rock that we would build our lives on. Lord, I pray that as we build our rock on him and his word, when the winds and the waves of this life come, it won't knock our house down. Father, I pray for believers around this world that are being imprisoned today. Father, I pray that you would set the captives free. Father, we would love to see that captivity be set free here on this earth. But we know that because they're in Christ, even if their captivity is not set free on earth, they are set free in heaven. Lord, I pray for the pastors that have been imprisoned because of the gospel. I pray for the families that have been torn apart because of the gospel. I pray for those that are going through misery today because of the gospel. They have not turned away from you. So, Father, give them the courage to be able to stand firm. Give them a peace that surpasses understanding. Give them a joy that's unspeakable in the midst of the greatest trials. And for us, Father, help us to know that we've been blessed to be a blessing. For the glory and honor of your name alone, in Jesus' name, amen.